Welcome back to the Brooklyn Poets Yopcast for August 14th, 2017, featuring poet Miller Oberman leading our workshop and kicking off the open mic. I am your host and MC, Jason Koo. The Brooklyn Poets Yop is a monthly poetry workshop and open mic held at 61 Local in Cobble Hill. That's at 61 Bergen Street, off Smith Street, close to the Bergen Street FG stop. For more information and to sign up for the workshop and open mic in advance, go to brooklynpoets.org. This month's open mic lineup featured Julie Chen, Sidra Mallory, Carol Derby, Christian Larson Socaris, John Acker, Alan Braverman, Noah Ateji, Harvey Sauce, Richard Fine, Abigail Wellhouse, Christina Callery, Donna Hunt, Julie Hart, Julia Knobloch, Arthur Russell, Kyle Young, Emma Rojas, Lauren McGrath, and Anam Sattar. So let's get right to it. The Brooklyn Poets Yop open mic for August. Enjoy. This is the Brooklyn Poets Yop open mic. We have a swan in the room. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just turn around and look in the back row. We do. Thank you. Thank you, Candy. Thank you. I appreciate it. I was talking to Miller earlier. Miller had no idea that it, ha- that it happened. And I was like, uh, look, Miller, if it exists on Facebook, it exists in the world. Uh, I was like, how do you not know? Uh, before we begin, I have a few announcements, some of which I uh, started before the open mic, before our break. Um, just a, an FYI, starting in September, the YAWP admission price is going up from 5 to 10 for the open mic plus the workshop. This is just full disclosure, so you know in advance in case you were planning on coming. The open mic will remain $5. So if you just come at 8 for the open mic, that's still the same price. If you want the workshop, the complete package, full body experience, full body experience, that doesn't make any sense. It sounds so weird now. I've, just, I've had a lot of massages lately. That's, what, that's what's on my mind. Or maybe I haven't had enough. That's, that's why. But if you want the workshop and the open mic, that is $10. The, the exciting thing is that a membership is, gives you admission for a year to the YAWP. And the membership is worth, we're going to make that $60 starting at September. So if you do the math, you get full admission to a YAWP for an entire year, half off, $60 instead of $120. Uh, again, the reason why we are doing this is, first of all, you know, with that motherfucker in charge of the White House, we are worried about funding. We are worried about funding sources like the NEA that might disappear as soon as next year. Uh, we are also trying to increase payment to our teachers. Uh, the beginning YOPs uh, back like four years ago were taught for free. Uh, I think the first four were taught by myself for free. That was a sad, sad but exciting time for me. <laughs> Uh, and in fact, the first year, even the people that I, so, so you know, quote unquote, hired to teach taught for free. Uh, now we pay them $50. We're, we're hoping to double that. Uh, and you will help us do that. Um, the great thing about Broken Posts is we're not reliant on grants. Uh, most of our revenue is, just comes from you guys, the people. Uh, you sign up for workshops, you come to the events, and we don't have to rely on the whims of <laughs> despots in charge of the arts in America. So uh, that is why we are raising prices. 
Uh, hopefully you are okay with that and we will see you in September. Another big change starting with September is to the open mic sign up. We have, as you can see, a lot of demand. Uh, this isn't even a totally full room. Sometimes we have like 90 people here. I just have these absurd wait lists that are like <laughs> 65 poets long and we only have legitimately time for about 20. So beginning in September, we're only gonna hold 15 slots for the open mic list. We're gonna have the first five slots be open. Right? And that means basically whenever you show up, if you show up here early, if you're first in line, you can just sign up for the open mic. You don't have to sign up in advance. And the entire wait list will be open. So no more <laughs> will I get emails from people who find out they're on the wait list saying, actually, I have something else to do. I can't make it that night. Total silence. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not sure you, I'm not sure you follow my pain. What happens is I tell them, I tell someone they're on the wait list and they respond, actually, shit, I, I, I got something to do. I can't make it after all. And I'm like, why did I email you? So uh, that won't happen anymore because now if you're on the wait list, you have just as much of a chance as everyone else to get on the open mic list. You just have to show up here really early. And hopefully you'll be here for the open mic, or sorry, for the workshop, which is what we want. No, the work, the, it'll just be run the same. It's just only 15 people can sign up in advance. Whereas in the past, we had 20 slots for the main list, and then we had the wait list. Now we've got 15. You can, sign, you can still sign up in advance for those 15 slots. After that, the first five slots are open, and then the whole wait list is open. Right? So basically, if you show up early, you've got a good chance to read, even if you don't sign up in advance. Like people like Arthur, who si he's probably signing up right now. Right now? So, uh, <laughs> and again, that is really the best way to get on the list. Is, I mean, it's still it's nice to sign up early. If you sign up like at the end of the event, you will probably be first. So... That's a good thing to do. Uh, I'm gonna get to the, the main announcements very quickly. We do have fall workshops beginning the last week of September. The early registration deadline is September 17th, which is the day of the Book and Book Festival. Our fellowship application season is open as well. You can apply to take a workshop for free. If you win the fellowship, we usually award between four or five, maybe sometimes six fellowships. Uh, okay, enough of this, enough talk of money and all this crap. How's everyone doing? I, I, that was probably an appropriate, appropriate response for the state of the United States of America right now. How's everyone feeling about Charlottesville? Anyone know anyone there? I mean, Miller we know is from there. Really? You're from there too, Laura? Yeah, I grew up there. What's with all these poets I know from Charlottesville? Maybe you guys are the problem. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally put you guys in the spot. Uh, if you haven't been to the Yop open mic before, a few, gro few ground rules. One, you get three minutes max on the mic. And basically what I'm doing now is I'm limiting you to two poems. Because some of y'all are like, I got three poems. And it's like seven minutes. <laughs> and you don't think I notice. But guess who edits the podcast afterwards and sees just how long you're reading for, right? So uh, if you read long, you will be getting an email from me. <laughs> I know. Dread getting in trouble with Jason Koo. Yes, three minutes max on the mic, please. The reason why we do this is because we're not just about ourselves at Brooklyn Post. I mean, we love ourselves, really. But like Whitman, not only do we love ourselves, but we love other people. We love the community. So when you adhere to your time limit, you are loving the other poets in the room, especially the people on the wait list who are just desperate. Some of them are, um, seriously, are like desperate to read. They would kill you, probably, if they had a, if they had a blunt object. 
so three minutes max on the mic. We do record the open mic as a podcast called the Yopcast. You can subscribe on iTunes. That would be great if you would. I think we have like two subscribers, me and my fiance. <laughs> so uh, build that up for us. It really is. I put a lot of effort into this podcast. We uh, Last month, we bought a lot of new audio equipment. Now it sounds amazing. It actually sounds like a professional job. Uh, I can see I'm clearly impressed with myself for this. So please subscribe. If you don't want to be in there, say you read and you don't want to be in the recording, you just need to tell me afterward. You can email me or just tell me in person. I can take you off the recording. Uh, please speak into the mic. It's a little less important now that we have this good recording equipment, but about this distance is good. Don't like read over here or... If you put the mic away, I'm probably going to just delete you from the recording because <laughs> it won't sound that good. So don't do that. Just leave it here. Um, anything I'm forgetting? Oh, poem of the month. Every month. <laughs> I'm so glad you're I here. I basically forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Every month we vote for a poem of the month. It's decided by audience vote. The 12 winners of poem of the month over the past year compete for poem of the year at the December YOP. So far, by the way, 2017 is definitely the year of the woman. Every person that has won has been a woman. So, God damn it for the women. Fuck you, Trump. <laughs> Fuck you, Charlottesville. The women here rule. So, uh, you men in here, maybe bring up your game a little. <laughs> Not saying it's you. Maybe the audience just prefers the women. Uh, we have just a few slots left for that poem of the year SmackDown. So uh, here is the number. The first time tonight, it is my personal cell phone number. You vote by way of text message. Wait till the end of the evening for poem of the month. The number is 718-374-1953. 718-374-1953. You just need to tell me the name of the poet, or if you can remember the title of the poem, that's great. Describe the poet with a metaphor that's accurate. It'll probably work. Okay, we ready to get started? Yeah. All right, our first poet of the evening is the wonderful professor who just led you in a workshop on animals. Give it up for Miller Oberman. I hope one day to be as tall as Jason, but... <laughs> um, I'm going to read two poems. Um, the first one I have never read, and the second one I have actually read a lot, but I wrote it um, in my head when I was driving home to Charlottesville a few years ago, so I feel I can't get around reading it tonight. Um, the first poem is called The Sky Stone. In the field behind his town lived the Sky Stone. One night he curled around it, curved where it curved, lay in its coolness, fitted his hips to the damp place it met the earth. They said the ground under the stone was like other ground. They said the stone had been a star that came unstuck so long ago. All the trees it crushed came back. Their twirling seed puffs rolled off the crushed trees, rooted and grew. They said the stone was twice as big at first, but wore down over time the way windows are worn soft, beaten away by rain. But no ground is like other ground. Uh, this poem is called Lies After the War, um, and anyone who's ever driven a lot between New York and Charlottesville knows that <laughs> you drive past Bull Run all the time, um, and Manassas, and all that good stuff. Um, Lies After the War. We went to Bull Run, or was it Manassas? One of those. 
past Battlefield Ford, past Glory Days Bar in the Strip Mall, or was it before the mall was built, or was it after the mall was abandoned? I was grizzled with age. I was 21 at the small beige visitor center. I remember it without sound. They had a machine there that sucked up sound. It was mostly made of hollows, blanks, lack, and also plastic. It came with a smaller version of itself whose job was to suck the sound of the larger sound sucker. It did its work. It was about the size of a foot. Either run that or the place would be filled with ordinary sounds, squirrels twitching their tails, chattering one to another in their ceaseless brag about acorn hordes. They couldn't risk the sound of dirt suffocated under the sown sod or the possibility of rustling leaves. This is not the grass where it happened, not the starved pines. These clouds have shifted. Never do they look like hacked arms, heaped corpses. We lay in the sound empty field under the cloud constellation of Virginia. Look up, that one's a crutch, that one's a stump, that one's a burning town and the yellow tendrils of gangrene. The air turned to ether. The ether was painless. It was all painless, I swear. Thank you, Miller. Our first poet of the night, I believe, is a Yop debuter. I'm guessing I'm going to have to lower what I just raised to give it up for Julie Chen. Hi, um, this is my first time here, and I'm nervous, but I'm here. Um, and I'm going to read one poem called Twin Peaks. Do you regret anything about last night? His body, and especially his calves, are skinnier than mine. If I pushed him off the bed, he'd get lodged between the mattress and the wall, like a chewed-up tennis ball caught in the neighbor's gutter, a katamari, collecting broken earphones, left socks, my bracelet from that flea market in Berlin, which I might have actually left in somebody else's bedroom. Do I regret anything about last night? Not the foil wrap burrito, half-naked on the nightstand. The backing beats, raindrops on tin awnings, clinking bottles. The drunk text to a different boy, I miss you, I want to see you, I want to suck you off, I want to drink some more, swallow the summer, belch, add my own to the afterlives embodied in the San Francisco fog. Do you regret anything about last night? His voice is rubbery, it wobbles like a polygraph, taste of latex, a fumbling blowjob, singeing my tongue with sulfur. With sulfur. I wonder if it always asks questions the way a finger will test the sharpness of a knife. Hands that usually don't do stuff like this will pull apart closed legs. I wonder if it always asks questions but doesn't wait for answers, sober ones, till the morning after. I don't regret anything. I won't for a while. I just woke up facing my roommate's bed. There's a thunderstorm, a flood rising from my throat to my, from my, throat to my forehead. The pieces of last night are magnets. They tug at my refusal to put them together. I try to imagine my shoulder blades as mountains. Thanks. 
apologize. I'm so I'm so inefficient tonight between poets. Uh, our next poet, I think, might be another Yop debuter. I'm going to totally butcher this name. Is it Sidra Mallory? Sidra Mallory, give it up for Sidra. This is a beautiful microphone. I came last month for the first time and I was just like, oh my God, the microphone. <laughs> I sit on a big rock, try to listen. Water birds cry to each other, almost cat-like in their muse. Somewhere, a bagpipe pauses. A gull mimics the airplane heading south. Somewhere, someone is hitting something with something else. The wind makes dry grasses whisper. They hold down the earth. They reach up. They rub softly together. I don't understand what they say. I am a living thing sitting on a rock. The sky is big here. It is not quiet. I lay back, try to listen closer. This, they say, this. What is my place in the world? I'm not sure. I think they are saying this. I know there's a couple teachers in the room. I'm a teacher, too. <clears throat> we are, like, in it right now. Summer full. I already had my anxiety dream. Okay. <laughs> How to tell time. First, you need to own this. The longer hand is for the shorter unit of time. You have to imagine the shorthand pointing to a place of substance, not the vast field of space between two numbers. That shorthand does not move. That shorthand does move. No, you can't see it. You just have to believe in its movement. As we believe we are indeed standing on a large ball and the ball is turning, rotating and revolving both at a regular pace. Can't you feel it? To tell time, you must think of time both as a line, like a number line with end arrows pointing back and forward, beyond those numbers we can see in the room, to a place we must envision, and all the places beyond that place in both directions, as well as a circle. Yes, a circle, because in 12 hours, we will be back here at the same spot on the clock. The Earth will have rotated halfway round. Can't you see? You always come back to the same spot. Here you eat your oatmeal. Here you fight with a plastic zipper on your coat. This is how you tell time. You need to name the points that are nameable. You mark the moments between those points. The second hand click, the blood through vein throb, the awkward mechanics of digestion, the pulling at the finger skin near your thumb with your teeth. Mark the moments between those points with the moments themselves. Telling time is simple. It is the naming of two points on a circle rolling down a line, not a segment, the whole line. Thank you, Sidra. That was Sidra Mallory. Before that was Julie Chen. Next up is, I think, another Yop debuter. It's really nice, all these new poets were poets that are new to the Yop anyway, coming to the open mic. Give it up for Carol Derby. I was desperate, now I'm nervous. 
Um, this is an abecedarian I wrote in uh, Jess Greenbaum's workshop this summer, and I, I can't say enough about Jess Greenbaum, so I'll just go on. Uh, it's titled Gansfeld. <clears throat> Gansfeld is a German word for complete field, and it's the phenomenon of what we see when we're exposed to complete darkness or a whiteout. Attempting to read about Gansfeld, a term used by the artist James Terrell to describe his work, I come to a full stop, glance at my mother as her doorbell rings, and then someone pounds as if it were entirely possible that my mother's house is on fire. We are at the breakfast table, warming up worries gone cold overnight. My mother drops her cup, hurries to the door, and finds a cop on the other side. I come up behind her as he says, the crew is getting a jump on digging up her side of the street today. Not at all kindly, he asks if she plans to go out because she's already late to get her car out of the garage onto the cross street. Most definitely she's going out and she tells him so, not that she would consider parking her Avalon on the street. The car that never refuses her, the car she pampers, praises like a good dog, I stand ready to quell something, I don't know what, when Richie, the neighbor, waves her over, says she can park in his driveway. That's how the day is saved. Unless you want to talk about how my mother veered and saved us from a run-in with the lawn guy, riding like he was on an Xbox freeway on his Craftsman YT mower across Richie's asphalt Zoom, and suddenly everything looks sharp. And a second poem. Um, this I started five years ago when I moved to Fort Greene, and every storefront, or this one in particular, uh, called up for something. Dive for it. Out the door and down the block, left on Carlton, right on Myrtle, I went to the threshold of the shop to watch them, the turtles in the 10-gallon tank. Something about the way their legs moved, like the blades of a fan after the power's been cut. No hurry to breathe, the bottom dwell, so little effort. My brother, disabled on land, he stays down forever, my aunt said, and he did bring us to stillness inside the thin walls of a backyard pool. His hair and swim trunks swayed like seagrass, his heavy limbs let loose, equal to the water, and in his lungs he kept it, the air beneath his hard shell, the lock at the base of his throat, I went down with him after the stone our father tossed. He came up, eyes closed. His dark lashes gathered to conduct the streams down his face, along the tendons of his neck, to pool at the clavicle he will one day break, battling with a fire door from his wheelchair, miles away from here, where I come up with the stone. I come up for air. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. And we have one, uh, in fact, I have several more YAP debuters. They're all YAP debuters almost tonight until we get to Alan Braverman. Uh, our next reader is Christian Larson. So, is it Socaris? Christian Larson Socaris. Give it up for Christian. Three short poems. Um, the first two are love poems. We need more of that. And uh, the other is kind of a love poem. Who is this woman who I revolve around? My system's sun and distant star. Her movements mirrored and manifest in the seasons of my life. 
With her light, she saturates me, warm on my skin, a place without shadow. But when I look, she also blinds. In the dark, she is my reference point, the clearest guide in a dizzying sky, as she twinkles and glows across the cosmic expanse. Always in her light, and never in her presence, my heart beats a rhythm of joy, and yet needs constant repair. My two most prized possessions are something she left me and something she left behind. A normal envelope <coughs> neatly holds the scraps of sentiment that she cast about my room like little love bombs exploding in my heart every time I found one. When I read them now, I marvel at their sweetness and how one person could have touched me there and there and there and there. Wrapped in careful folds of plastic like an artifact in a museum collection, hidden from the light and air that might degrade its delicate connection to the past is the empty perfume bottle she left unknowingly in my care. Carefully unwrapping what appears to contain nothing at all, I hold its little spigot of her essence to my nose, not knowing or caring as I inhale, am I an addict, romantic, genius, or fool, because for a few quiet moments she is here. This envelope, this bottle, both fragile and dissipating containers of hope, like funerary objects helping my journey to another world. Yet having neither the assurance of the noble-born or the equanimity of the saints, I hold them closer still. We hadn't meant to go out that night, but Tanya, visiting from Zagreb, was determined to pack as many nights of New York fun as she could fit within the confines of her waking hours. Already past eight, I powered through the listings of every small club in the city, pulling up videos in sound clouds, a kaleidoscope of mediocre bands or great ones already on stage to play, exhausting the postings that I could think to search. An hour having passed, I was reminded of one last place to try, pulling up its website, describing its three small rooms and hourly shows. The last one I searched was an unknown woman with the poetic name Nibia B. Immediately, we were scrambling for makeup, shoes, and keys, with the urgency of people gathering their possessions for an evacuation. Rushing across the river, like the water passing through it, unstoppably pressing toward the magic we had just heard through my laptop speakers. Arriving as the first song began, we filled the last human-sized gaps in the tiny room, where she would hold us in her delicate hands for too brief a collection of transcendent, soul-probing moments. Overrun and at moments on the edge of overwhelmed by this small woman with a voice and song for the ages, we understood once again that this frustrating, grinding city is also a church where the world's most beautiful people come to pray. Thank you, Christian. Very, very tall. Our next poet is a student of mine at Quinnipiac University. You guys know how to pronounce Quinnipiac? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I don't, but uh, it's, it's so it sounds right, which is the more important thing. Uh, he made the trip from Brantford, Connecticut tonight, so uh, the one person that traveled farther than Arthur, probably. That's true. Right. I think she took a flight. That would definitely t Did you take a flight? Yeah, that would take the cake, definitely. From Ohio, right? Did you wear the swan the whole way? 
I was like, did you have to take that off when you went through the security? Anyway, give it up for Brantford's finest, John Acker. Thank you. All right, so the title of this first one is um, An Almost Self-Portrait. We used to run through the sunflower fields like spring sprites, bouncing and weaving through the dark green stalk. Bright yellow heads looked down on our tiny heads, but I never remember telling them apart from the sun, sun. The bees looked bigger back then, the size of our thumb. Even though I was terrified of them every other day of the year, they felt friendly there in the thick of the flower. There was something numbing about the air and how it smelled like sweet earth and honey. People standing on the cut of the road painted pictures in oil, and cars drove slow while they passed, either to look at the people looking at the fields or at the fields themselves. We used to take naps in the soft patches and dream about making it into one of the paintings the people painted, or maybe even into the frame on a wall, possibly somewhere where we could lay there forever. Uh, the title of this next one is Eight Dollar Beers in a Three Star Bar. <laughs> they said that poetry can be anything, so I turned mine into a katana and sliced my agony into pieces small enough to swallow whole. The only mixer that gives me more gas than soda is defeat. <laughs> Part of me keeps saying that life is just a phase and that I'm trying to work through it. Part of me is trying to dissolve into the foreground of this place, like the flickering blue bar light that's struggling to hold itself against the black mat of the walls. I wore my best linen blazer because it holds stains the best. <laughs> Forgetting is the one thing I cannot give myself the pleasure of feeling. They said that I could be anything, and so I chose to be my body instead of me. Well done, John Acker. You must have a good teacher. You knew that joke was coming. <laughs> Ken Cormier, such an asshole. That's my colleague. The other one. <laughs> is Delisha Walker here? No, someone on, the, someone on the wait list is happy. How about Stefan Larison? Is that, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Stefan Larison? <laughs> I really... I really can't think of another way to pronounce it. Lerisson, maybe. Stéphane Lerisson. My French is terrible. Okay, well, uh, I don't think they're here. Our next reader is finally a non-Yop debuter. Give it up for Alan Braverman. Good evening, my fellow poets. My first poem is short and simply titled, Intimacy. Both of us lying as one, a genetic exchange reduced to X's and Y's, a symbiosis of mind and spirit, transported to a portal where time and space have no parameters, an endless bliss in a primordial sea, a site not charted, mapped, or surveyed, a mythological arena where reality can coexist 
A bright sun emerges, neutering the body to preserve the psyche, an ethical dilemma in this guide for the perplexed. Well, the next poem is quite different. In light of the deadly violence carried out by white nationalists in Charleston, Virginia, where our president refused to call it an act of terror until today, waited three days, I had to respond with a poem. I wrote this 20 years ago. It's called The Schwarzsticker and the Noose. The broken cross, hangman's rope, symbol of power and oppression, a Nazi icon painted on synagogues, tombstones, and Jewish homes, a noose hung from trees, the Holocaust and lynchings, Jews and African Americans as victims, separate histories, common enemies, the Jew perceived as that untermenschen or subhuman, the African American viewed as an inferior race, both peoples with centuries of isolation, oppression, brutality, torture, rape, and murder, where the slaves were trans transported to the New World and the people of the Jewish faith were banished from the old. Bondage in the Americas as anti-Semitists spread through Europe, declaring war on Christ killers. Lynchings in the US through the 1930s and beyond. The noose more than a symbol becomes an instrument of terror. An ancient Indo-Aryan emblem, the swastika symbolizing life resurrected by the Nazis leading to genocide. The broken cross and the hangman's rope reflecting hatred and bigotry remind us of what was and what is. I just, as a postscript to my poem, about 30 years ago, we moved into a house in uh, Windsor Terrace, and uh, I invited a close friend, female, African-American, came into our house. The next morning when we opened the door, someone spray-painted a swat sticker in front of our home. Oy vey. So uh, on a personal level, I've lived through some of the horror of anti-Semitism. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Alan. Appreciate it. That was Alan Braverman. Before that was John Acker, Christian Larson Socaris, Carol Derby, Sidra Mallory, and Julie Chen. Uh, is Becky Torog here? Do you know her? <laughs> I got into trouble last time. I don't know if you remember. Apparently someone was really mad that I didn't, I didn't see her waving in the back. Yeah, and she silently resented me instead of telling me. <laughs> but then, but then somebody else sitting near her told me. It really is. That's true. <laughs> don't silently resent me. Just tell me you hate me. Our next reader, man, another difficult name, but so far I think I'm doing pretty well. So let's give it a try. Is uh, Noah Ateji? That's right. Give it up for Noah Ateji. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Noah. It's my first time reading here. Um, I just want to preface this poem by saying I have eczema um, or atopic dermatitis, and that's what this poem is about, um, just so you don't think it's like a murder scene or something. <laughs> okay. Um, this poem is called Part Organ, Part Me. Sometimes when I wake up, sunken in a bath of my dead skin and encircled by spots of dry blood, 
I hope, like after a snake has shed its entire layer of skin, I have rectilically slipped out of my old wrinkled self and have been reborn. I hope that the mass of scabs and scars of an itchy yesterday have vanished into the wide body of my bed, into the shield of my blanket where only I can see the damage. And like one quick movement of a hot wax strip along hairy skin, I will rip off the blanket and find nothing there, a clean, pristine exterior. But that's only a dream I have in my scarce hours of sleep. For when I rip my blanket, I, like my sheets, am dirtier than the night before. I, unlike a reptile, have not been given the privilege of rebirth. Decisions of the night before linger underneath my fingernails, in the creases of my neck skin, in the meandering spongy paths of my brain, through the valves of my heart, and latch onto me until the next day, a latch that comforts me by its warmth and consistency, yet strangles me to pain. My skin is indiscreet in its looks, yet invisible in its weight. For when I walk the streets, people don't stare in admiration at my strength, or gently yield to my presence like they would a mother that effortlessly walks with two children dangling from her body, one from her waist and the other from her arms. Instead, they allow themselves to brush up against me and my cumbersome organ and instinctively flinch at the roughness of it. Children gaze at me, puzzled, whose eyes see my peeled, my unraveled, exposed story, an unusual sight for a child who's only seen grown people in hiding. As an adult's pain is not a last finishing coat in a years-long paint project, it was the first stroke smothered by millions of layers on top of it. My skin confuses the hearts of many who see it and feel disgust, yet console me with love you no matter what. My skin confuses me too because when I rub off my blanket in the morning, half of me is scattered and the other half is glued to me. Half of me is permanent and the other half is a one-night stand gone with sunrise. Half of me I can label medically as an organ and nothing more. It's separate, unfamiliar, part of the past, part already dead, and the other half is me. My skin confuses me too. On one hand, I want to be loved not in spite of, but because of my skin. Because loving my, lar my largest organ, my skin, above my heart, my brain, is to love me for my complexity, my abstractness, my multicoloredness, like the changing colors of my skin. My honesty, my storytelling, through my scratches and sunken eyes. On the other hand, my stories are stories of pain, and my skin is not me. It's an entity that eats me whole, swiftly and unconsciously, like the whale ate Jonah. It's an ugly entity that I hope the man who will one day wake up next to me will look at when it's in my bed and feel blessed, not disgusted that my flesh peels so easily because it bears no importance, no permanency to the real beauty that's on the inside. So no, I am not a snake. I'm not either glistening like a newborn baby or decaying fully. I am a chameleon. I shed only in parts, so that I'm part ephemeral and part everlasting, part loved and part hated, part scattered and part stuck to me, part insignificant and part essential. Every day I wish when I rip off my blanket I'll see nothing there, but I also wish every day to remain a chameleon, ever changing in color and part replenishing in spirit. Thank you, Noah. Very impressive. I too have eczema. Sometimes. <laughs> I've never written about it that well. In fact, I've never written about it at all. So, uh, good for you. Our next reader is Harvey Sauce. Give it up for Harvey. Leave a tithing. Uh, 
Okay. I'm going to read one poem. Let's see. Oh, there we go. Now I feel like a torch singer. Uh, I'm going to read one poem before uh, introducing or reintroducing an open mic series that I host at the Montour Club in Park Slope in Brooklyn. There are flyers over there. It's the third Sunday of every month from 1 to 3. Uh, you'd be surrounded by uh, stained glass and historic freezes. Uh, just need interest. So come if you can. This one is called uh, When We All Watched Dancing with the Stars. And if it had an epigraph, which it doesn't, it might be uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson cautions uh, when spacewalking uh, cross at the green and not in between. We are with you, Obi-Wan Kenobi, at least in Spiritus Mundi. Our sudden intake of breath that conjuring you dangling there causes a dip in air pressure over Bessarabia. As YouTube show you at the end of your tether, tetherball memes go viral with the usual doubters and jokers typically seeing you as the ball. Ever so carefully you draw yourself in, one hand after the other, space waltzing with a toolkit for emergency repair, twisting and turning over the blue Danube. Astronaut Agonistes, an Argonautic Jason casting a look down to find Earth enchanting as Medea, perhaps thinking that your children are in peril, as aren't they always. The leak appears to be a small one, a pinhole, not a wormhole, survivable if you lindy hop to it in the bellies of NASA engineers huddled over consoles, closely watched as newborns, acid reflux navigates to where you are. Stars circle overhead, or is it just dizziness? You drift back to a boyhood of bicycle patches and flat tires. The world is dialed into a golden fleece beauty pageant of survival. Reality TV honchos consider pros and cons of additional summer programming, a season or two of survivor space. It seems we've been holding our breath forever ready with electrifying heart paddles and a Sistine Chapel ceiling touch of CPR. If only you will come back to us. We are holding a place for you on The Bachelor. We are holding a place for you on As the World Turns. Thank you. Yeah, you never readjust it for me. I just realized that was like the first time. Yeah. <laughs> you guys could have a, like an act, like the two. No one would <laughs> Make it part of the Red Wheelbarrow Poets. I'll come out. I'll come out. I'll come out. <laughs> uh, is Kieran Bath here? Negative. Our next reader is Richard Fine. Give it up for Richard. <clears throat> 120 pages yet to go. <clears throat> Epigraph. To Jill, who couldn't finish the sci-fi novel Dune after four separate tries. Closing a novel before finishing it is just damn rude. Sure, 
resting your eyes or signing along, singing along with the radio, is, or a short hajj to the refrigerator for a sardine and peanut butter sandwich, is to be expected. But slamming the cover shut, never to reopen it, never to pick up where you left off, to leave the author forever in a tongue-tied lurch, ready, no dying, to finish that tale, but forced to leave the rest of his or her immortal epic forever untold, is simply bad manners. If, <clears throat> how would you like it if during a climactic denouement of your most passionate plot, your reader, <clears throat> the reader right before your eyes, jumps up to see if he forgot to put pickles in his grocery list. Did the key characters ever find true love? Was the pool boy fling worth the ending of a 30-year marriage? Was the gorgeous 14-year-old babysitter really jailbait? Did the dashing freedom fighter liberate all the oppressed? Was he truly dashing? Was he truly a freedom fighter? Or, as usual, just plain drunk? Did the plot plop on page 52? By yawning and closing the pages, you've told the author that lots of words were spilled, but no thoughts. <laughs> that is, if there ever were any thoughts crafting his words, somehow, some way, by ESP or transmission of Einstein's spooky actions at a distance, it will get back to the author, and he or she will take offense. Sure, blatant honesty can be cruel, but that's why etiquette and faint praise were invented. Closing a novel before finishing it is just damn rude. Even if you keep forgetting or no longer care whether it was on page 34 or 117 that the Sandman quietly turned your page. <clears throat> Little Red Riding Hood, the mixed up sequel. The town criers cried my story for a gold piece of cry. And minstrels got bagfuls of coins from the crowds. As for me, royalties in those days were for royals. So much for selling my story. Besides, us common folks never learned to write good, as you can plainly see. But there's more. When Grandma finally did croak, all she left me was that thatched cottage with a leaky roof to be shared with my three, of course wicked, stepsisters. Soon I was cheated out of the whole damn dump. After all, I was just a babe in the woods. Along came yet another woodsman, a prince among men, who did his fairy tale deed out of love, love for mankind, and oh boy, how that prince loved mankind. For he had no interest at all in my books and butts, <coughs> busts and curvy hips. Besides, I had no dowry except for my basket of chump cherries and how he hated cherries, chumped or not. But he had a special place in his heart for bananas. I wore a flashy red cloak that matched his flaming pantaloons for even then, virgin white was never my style. I ain't stupid. 
I learn real good, real fast. When I meet my next lonely lone wolf, I ain't gonna be no babe in the woods. A gold piece an hour and no more free nibbles. I'll save enough for a deluxe gingerbread condo where someday my looks will surely go and I'll keep the kitchen cauldron boiling, double, double, toil and trouble. And you can just bet this someday crone will wolf down any lost Hansel and Gretel. Thank you. That was Richard Fine. Before that was Harvey Sauce. Before that was Noah Ateji, Alan Braverman. Our next reader is a very fine poet. She is in the Brooklyn Poets Anthology, which is for sale in the back. $5 up. $5 off. I said $5 up, which doesn't make any sense. Give it up for poet Abigail Wellhouse. Hi, everyone. I'm Abigail Wellhouse, and I have two poems to read for you today. My first poem is about a little pug teaching Donald Trump how to love. <laughs> Donald and the Pug. Donald sits in his tower in his favorite red chair. In his lap, he holds a little black pug. He strokes the pug's head. The dog sticks her tongue out. The night before, Melania said goodbye. My only hope is that this little black pug will teach you how to love, she said. I know how to love, Donald tells the pug. The dog wags her tail. Donald image searches a little black pug and finds a picture of one that looks afraid of broccoli. How do I describe this photo, he says to himself. It's not bigly. It's not failure. He decides to tweet the photo. Someone tweets back, what a cute little guy. Oh, that's the word, Donald says out loud. Cute. He can only think out loud. <laughs> Melania emails him an article about how black dogs are less likely to be adopted, partially because people are worse at photographing them. Sad, says Donald aloud. <laughs> he prints the email. Donald looks at the dog in his lap and waits for a feeling. So there's a lot of people reading tonight about bodies, and this poem, I think, is the opposite of a line that John Acker said earlier that I'm going to mess up, but he said, I want to be me, but, no, I want to be my body, but not me. So this is a poem about feeling the opposite when you want to be you, but not your body. So this is called Antibody. When we first met, Anthony told me that he did 100 push-ups a day. He denies that now, says it's never been more than 50, less now that he's doing them correctly. I picture proper form, which I've never had and probably don't even picture properly. Some weeks the body feels like an obligation. I slam the door when I leave to swim laps. I tell Gregory, what's the point? We're all dying anyway. This week I started a sentence, now that I'm aging. It was a joke halfway, but I've always been aging, even before birth. Growth is aging too, and it's easy to see beauty in other people. The friend I told as a teenager that I loved the way her eyes crinkled when she smiled. Not what she wanted to hear at 16. Maybe it reminded her of the feet of a crow, nature made medical, something to be fixed, with lasers and rubbing skin off onto something else. Acids, the options are all in the catalog. Sign here to be needled, a few days to recover like a lucky car crash. A face bruised and wrapped. Instead, I cover mine in chocolate, useless but fragrant. 
rinse off and imagine filling holes with collagen, like resurfacing a tire. The way the dermatologist once made me anticipate winter, the way she wrapped the way she described wrapping myself up and waiting for spring. I'm not always good at softness, the tired edge more likely sandpaper and needles. I imagine living inside a body that's mine but smoothed over, pulled apart, then folded into shape, stretched. I text my friend Amy and she says she knows the feeling. I spend the weekend asking everyone, do you know? Like housework, like clockwork, picturing decades of folding laundry and washing dishes. The only way around it is to get someone else to do it. But bodies are too stubborn to be outsourced. I read a book that said I should exercise six days a week until I die and grow younger next year. I don't want to grow younger, even though I got a box in the mail with a perfume that promised to make me smell younger, with science. I resent the use of science as a weapon. I resent the billions of dollars telling me what I need, what I am, what I'm capable of, what my obligations are. I can change my life with a new cart filled with clothes. Another door slams and I hear a key in the lock. A body is alone so rarely in a city. That's why they come here, to be with other bodies. We squeeze into subway cars and jeans that fit too tight. Some of us sit with knees too wide despite the signs. How much space am I allowed to take up? Once I held a grudge too long, and no, it wasn't only once. A woman said to me, you won't get in trouble because you, won't, you don't take up much space. I heard, because no one notices you. The summer I got my navel pierced, photos of me on a boat, thin and hard to look at. How easy to think you are above the earth, existing in a higher plane. Thanks. Thank you, Christina. You can see why she's in the Broken Poets Anthology. Oh, sorry, I'm reading the name of the next poet, sorry. Abigail, you can see why Abigail is in the Brooklyn Poets Anthology. That's fine. Totally fine if you do that. By the way, did you notice that the poet, I think the poet before you or a couple before said uh, spooky action at a distance, which is, which is the name of uh, Gregory Crosby, her partner's chapbook, right? Yeah, I thought that was, yeah, this is like a moment we're having. Yeah. Hopefully now you're on my good side now. Anyway. Our next poet uh, is here from Detroit. How many of you saw that Detroit movie? <laughs> I saw that Detroit movie on Saturday. You know what I'm talking about, the, the movie? <laughs> it was great, but very painful. Uh, I texted one of my friends about it. He was like, you saw that today? <laughs> Are you crazy? Anyway, uh, it felt good to get on my race rage in one day. Uh, but Detroit has other nice things. <laughs> and uh, give a warm welcome to Christina Callery. short, so can you guys hear me? Okay. I'm going to read uh, an old poem, um, and this is kind of a found poem, because basically I just came across a headline one day, and I knew I had to write a poem before somebody else got to it first. Um, there was just something so that re really resonated with me. Um, it's about falling for the wrong one. Um, and I feel like I should be wearing the swan hat back there to read this. <laughs> yeah, we all should have them. It's called Swan Falls in Love with Swan-Shaped Boat. So, Dateline Berlin. A swan has fallen in love with a plastic swan-shaped paddle boat 
on a pond in the German town of Munster and has spent the past three weeks flirting with the vessel five times its size, a sailing instructor said Friday. He's not half nuts, this German swan. To love something so near the actual, you might squint from shore, squishing sand beneath your toes to see its broad white belly part the shining green. Neck angled always toward the clouds, deflecting every antic of its frenzied mini-suitor. This happens, right? Who among us with a single red corpuscle hasn't dug in and waited the whole doomed thing to its conclusion? <laughs> Wanting some chill beauty to paddle its slow turn toward us on the man-made lake? In your case, not a Munster tourist boat, let's hope, but more like the narcissist with lovely eyes and a voice to unzip things to, or the one that cut the right profile but sank like a Petoskey stone. But still, in spite of tear stains, sucker punches, fist to the glass jaw, the dumb heart beats and tries again. See, there he goes, beak agog and hissing at the rival birds, wings spread to seem more menacing, black webbed feet paddling frantic through the algae. Then night sets and a silver moon beams down on bird and boat afloat alone and in the pale light, looking for all the world, like the shape of love. Thank you. Thank you, Christina. Very nice. Detroit's got poets, too. Candy. Our next poet is from Cleveland, which is a, uh, a rival of Detroit in baseball. Luckily, the, the Tigers are terrible this year. Uh, in fact, she is leaving us to move back to Cleveland for a while, and uh, I think she needs to be there for October when we win the World Series, so that's important. Give it up for Donna Hunt. Thanks. Hi. I'm Donna. Um... Yeah, it's going to be my last time here for a while. And I just wanted to say that everyone here is always such a generous listener. It's such a great room to read in. So um, thank you. Um, uh, this poem is based on a true story. Unannounced job review. I have glitter on my hands, strawberry-scented pens, and sequins on my sandals. Breathing has never been so difficult in all my life. The woman with the PhD has on pearls and heels, black silk blouse, blazer, also black. The world is black, the world is white. It turns by day and then by finding nothing to fidget with, hands play complicated cat's cradle games with themselves. My fingernails are red, slut red, Carolyn said just yesterday. Now I can't decide which of us is more of a stereotype. But I brushed my hair this morning. That doesn't happen all the time. <laughs> Dr. Grace asks about my goals. Daily, my goals include getting to work on time and then not killing anyone. <laughs> I may not know what I want, but if I were the king of the world, I'd tell you what I'd do. I'd throw away the cars and the bars and the wars. I don't want to be her. 
She lets me philosophize on the state of the administration, the union of affairs, until I hear myself trying to discuss the brilliance of three dog night. One is the loneliest. I reach for her coffee, give my sheepish Ohio smile, and of course, I drink. Already, somewhere Nick, I never understood a single word he said, but I helped him drink his wine, is laughing. His first word, anti-disestablishmentarianism. I hope it's still funny when I crash in his basement after my untimely, inevitable layoff. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. We'll miss you. I mean, you'll miss her, but she'll be on my group baseball text. <laughs> it gets very active in October. Our next poet, without any further ado, because we're really starting to run out of time, is Julie Hart. Give it up for Julie. So I'm lucky enough to have taken Miller's class and already written a poem about my mother. So, <clears throat> but of course it's already been workshopped, so don't think I just did this now. Okay. My mother is a tardigrade. She can withstand such temperatures, pressures, radiations, go without food or water for more than 30 years, then rehydrate, forage, reproduce. Though not extremophilic, she may as well be. She hangs on. She is still friends with her best friend from high school, with people I consider problematic, people I would have given up on, people I have. <laughs> My mother has survived six pregnancies, four, five, four live births, two ungrateful daughters who move far away to live their own lives. She is directed ventrolaterally, while her hind legs are used primarily for grasping the substrate. Her rhabdomeric pigment cup eyes are blue, but one has a brown spot on its edge. Her sensory bristles are sensitive, artificially curled. She and her sisters wish they were parthenogenic eggs left inside her shed cuticle attached to nearby moss. Her young are born with their full complement of cells, then, by hypertrophy, each cell enlarges. She has molted now at least 11 times. My mother has survived despite her children's colic, croup, crankiness, cruelty, even unto laughing at the ball at the end of her nose, her not reading French, her Sears Roebuck modeling pose. My mother is a tardigrade. She has been reported in hot springs at the top of the Himalayas, under layers of solid ice, in ocean sediments, at the bottom of bogs. She can suspend her metabolism, entering a state of cryptobiosis. Due to a unique disordered protein which replaces water in her cells, she adopts a glassy vitrification. She becomes a ton. My mother has survived hate mail, handed to her at a dinner party she was hosting from her oldest daughter and quietest critic. Even in outer space, after exposure to a hard vacuum, my mother can be revived. Earth's hardiest animal, tardigrade, or moss piglet, or Kleiner Wasser bear. My mother is a tardigrade, and I am my mother's daughter. Thank you. Nicely done. That's Julie Hart. Julie Hart is a former Yawper of the Year. If you don't know what that is, ask Arthur. <laughs> the poet before that was Donna Hunt, and before that was Christina Callery, 
Abigail Wellhouse, Richard Fine, Harvey Sauce, Noah Ateji. I'll go over the whole list at the end of the open mic. We are, I think, at the hour mark. So at this point, I really ask everyone to limit themselves to one poem. Make it your best poem. Otherwise, we will be here until we need to go to bed, Candy. So that's, we just can't have that. I got to go home and watch New Girl, you know, so. <laughs> Our next poet is the poem of the one, poem of the year winner. Sorry, not the poem of the month. She was poem of the month winner, and then she won poem of the year in 2016. Give it up for Julia Knobloch. To my ex-lover's brother. I know, I send you too many emails, too many and too soon. Please bear with me, one last moment. Let me explain why I was so gung-ho at the prospect of becoming friends with you. Gung-ho, you see, was a new word I learned from your brother, number three, when he told me to not attend a show to which you had cordially invited me. My brother's so gung-ho about his music, he should ask me before inviting you. I didn't go gave him space or time or both, thinking that in due course I would go to different concerts, art exhibits of a younger brother, astro happenings of yet another, or maybe meet the sisters too. No. Although one entire year went by in which I cooked and cared for him, gave him a place to stay for free, he swore he had run out of money, I stayed locked up conveniently in my southern Brooklyn closet, his go-to secret kept at both arms length, though cry and sleep he did in mine. And when I asked, why don't you want me to meet your other siblings? Why won't they ever come for dinner? He answered, nothing. I know, I waste your time, invade your space. I send you too many emails, too many and too soon. I said it would only take one moment, yet here I am, washing my and your brother's dirty laundry, this time cliched and figuratively, my soul not silent to those who curse me, my lips speaking disdainfully. No, you are not responsible, but aren't you your brother's keeper after all, the firstborn, wisest, guardian of the spark? I said I would respect sibling loyalty, but you're the only one I got to meet, and you could help me heal by saying, look, I can't be friends with you, but thanks, in the name of our family, for all you did for him, although, frankly, you were naive and dewy-eyed to let him take advantage. Why no defenses, Julia? We love him, but he is a jerk. <laughs> Forget about the money that you hope he'll pay you back. He's not broke, he never was. But you will never see a penny, so over dinner, outread, let me tell you, we're really sorry that he fucked with you. I don't like using fuck in poems. I don't like using fuck in emails either, but for months now, all I can think is fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> Who would want to deal with that? I know it's fucked up and convoluted. Frankly, I was gung-ho when I met you, who seemed so popular, fun, and handsome. No, please wait, I haven't even made my most important point. I liked you, sensible head of the tribe, the one who still does the Jewish stuff. So when by chance we sat next to each other in the bus to the Shabbat retreat and talked so easily, I wondered, why did I waste my time with number three when number one is so much better? Making me laugh, reflect, and sing? Call it camp crush or pathetic rebound. For a few weeks in summer, I dreamed of you instead of him. But when he asked for help again, like a dog marking his territory, I don't want her ever, yet she is mine and you won't have her, never. I fell for his scheme a second time. You know, it's cold and I've been thinking how things fall by the wayside when a circle closes, promises of friendship, illusions of romance. Maybe you never wanted to be my friend. Maybe the thought never occurred to you. 
Too bad she knew my younger brother first. Yes, I send you too many emails, too many and too soon, and I will avoid seeing you now. One last thing though, really. Do you remember the hug you gave me one year ago? It lingered on as if you didn't want to let me go. Then again, what do I know? Thank you. Thank you, Julia. Well done. So I like to say, what do I like to say? Fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Isaac Myers, everyone. <laughs> That's so good. Our next poet is the Yopper of the Year for, uh, what was it, 2006? That was 2016, right? It seems like ages ago. Give it up for Arthur Russell. Miller, thank you. That was a great workshop. A little round of applause for me. I know you'll be thanking them when you leave, so you might as well do it now. Um, this is called Burning Garbage. It's got four parts. One, my father considered it a kind of birthright to burn garbage, as long as he did it skillfully. Skill was his morality and burning garbage fit as basic rules of business. At the end of the day, we must go home with all the money. That was Brooklyn washing cars for the summer, and at 26, or precisely whatever age I was, and my dad at 66, we were strong. And I had another year on my creative writing fellowship in Syracuse, looking towards the spring of 84 for a free write. Fear of falling back into my father's orbit made me prickly, but I was, anyway, at the height of a certain set of abilities. I could count money, fix machines, wire appliances, stand in the street with a damp towel on my shoulder, supervise men, hand out tickets, vacuum cars, steam mats, scrub white walls, dry bumpers, wet wipe windows, change motors, go to the bank, reach between the dripping brushes in the path of cars on the conveyor line and collect fallen license plates, or catch up and jump into a moving car that had slipped into gear and was bouncing down the track, yank open the door and jab my foot on the brake. I could go up on the roof on a summer day with Prince McMichael, smoke cigarettes and slosh tar with a spent broom on the roof seams, and listen to him talk in disrespectful terms about the women he'd known. Take stitches out of Pete Watson's head with a tweezer and a razor blade so he wouldn't have to take time off to go to the doctor. Or I could follow Sam Tyler when he left his post and ambled toward the deli and stop him from buying beer. And I could burn garbage, smokelessly, in the yard behind our building. We burned garbage in a 55-gallon barrel that John Casey prepared by removing the top with a barrel-sized can opener and hammering the jagged flat edges flat. Then he stove holes in the barrel sides with a pickaxe and set it on a pair of I-beams with a milk crate inside. One of those barrels would last about a year before the steel collapsed like foil, disintegrate to rust in the fire and the rain. Casey was a big-boned, white-haired, rosy-cheeked, mostly toothless Irishman of the old school. And another time, I'll tell you about how he wasted his astonishing big-boned youth and lost his wife and nearly died of alcohol in that self-same car wash yard until he saved himself. For now, I'll say he collected the garbage from the trash cans with a hand truck, newspapers mostly, coffee cups, whatever, wet it down with gasoline and lit it. On a good day, with a good fire, the garbage burned so hot and fast, the people whose houses backed up to the car wash yard would see no smoke. 
The flames would seem no more than the heat waves surrounding Omar Sharif as he approached from a great distance in Lawrence of Arabia. But Casey didn't sort the garbage right. He'd dump it in the barrel even if someone's old car mats were in the mix. And the flames responded with a brilliant green and deeply photogenic resinous yellow color and thick black nauseous smoke that the world would see in news reports from Haiti. When my father saw the smoke from his office window, he, who had taught me my skills, sent me out to fix Casey's work. Three. I was excellent at fire tending, excellent at mats, excellent on vacuum, steam gun, window spray, side window, back window, checkout, cashier, and driver. And I was happy in that little corner of the yard feeding customer tickets, newspapers, lunch bags, and magazines to the flames, staring down into the barrel, feeling the heat on my face, the hairs on my arms crinkle, smelling them shrivel, jabbing the fire from above or stirring it through the pickaxe hole with a length of rebar for a poker. I studied how the smoke would run the length of tiny corrugations and smoldering pieces of cardboard like little chimneys within the conflagration, or how moisture sweated out of pages from the glossy magazines, and how quickly the fire would accept new material. And to keep it hot, I squirted gasoline from a ketchup bottle, and the flames would scale the stream of gasoline and try to enter the bottle. That happened once. I stared down into those flames in summer and winter whenever time permitted me the luxury of doing Casey's job. And I felt in my little garbage fire all the contentment that other men feel at their crackling campfires a dozen miles from the nearest hiking trail in the foothills of the Bitterroot Mountains. Because the Bitterroot Mountains are someone else's mountains, someone else's car wash, and this one was mine. My father and I were standing in the yard watching the garbage fire one summer afternoon when he told me he was thinking of selling the car wash. He'd been in that corner 40 years and he knew my future lay elsewhere and he was going to turn his attention to finding a buyer. And his voice had a tone less certain, not diminished, but gentler, that I wouldn't hear again until his final days like we were sitting in a mostly empty bar with a ball game on the screen above the liquor bottles, and the kind of friend a guy would be came sideways from his comments on the pitcher. Our arms were crossed on our chests, and our legs were planted wide apart because this is the way we stood. And there was a damp towel over my shoulder because there was always a damp towel over my shoulder. And a car, I think a Lincoln, pulled up at the entrance, and we watched Sam Tyler give the man a ticket, and I said, I could finish my classwork and come down and help you in January. And just like that, on the strength of nothing more than the intimacy in his voice, I had agreed to give up my utterly free semester to come down from Syracuse and wash cars with him. And I did it without him ever asking because I thought that he had. Thank you, Arthur. You write well about your father, by the way. <laughs> I meant that like as a joke, but also a compliment. I don't know why that's a joke. It's really not a joke at all. Uh, we're on to the wait list. I'm going to try to get to four of you. I'm sure you're teetering with anticipation. By the way, great crowd. This is impressive. In fact, this whole section is amazing. You're all still here. Although I, I do think some people left, and then some people filled in. Anyway, you're still a great crowd. I don't need to qualify it. You're still here. It's almost 9.30. Don't leave now, now that I said that. I can see people are 
I can feel people packing up. Don't pack up. <laughs> Our next reader is another Quinnipiac All-Star. Uh, I mean, just some brilliant students of mine at Quinnipiac. Give it up for Kyle Young. Has anyone here ever had Pocky? Yeah, yeah, yeah like, oh, it's, pocky. yeah, it's like a long, thin wafer stick dipped in chocolate. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's something you really can't find unless you're at an Asian supermarket, and um, dating um, a white girl, I get the opportunity to show her a lot of things for the first time, and so I got to introduce her to Pocky for the first time, and a couple days later, she went to an Asian supermarket to try to find Pocky, and she called me afterwards and said, yeah, I, uh, I couldn't find it, but I noticed the second I stepped in, everyone stared at me, and, and then I kind of butted, and I was like, and you realize that you were different than everyone else? <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling. So this is a poem that I've been meaning to write for a while now, and uh, that phone call kind of prompted me to finally write it. So Jason, Asian Americans in the audience, this is for you. Asian American. I am the hyphen between Asian and American. I am the letter you folded into sections and whose edges refuse to meet. I am the feeling you get when you step into the wrong part of town or the supermarket your friend told you about because it's the only place where you can find Pocky. <laughs> I'm the side wall of your Ikea bookshelf that was not carefully cut and measured and therefore does not assemble as conveniently as the pictures shown in the instructions. The instructions with nothing actually written except 16x, 12x, 12x, 18x, 16x, 1, 2x, 3, 4, 5x, 6, 7. I'm also the screw that is missing. I'm the passing cloud that you and your friend argued over what it is. No, I'm this. No, I'm definitely that. No, you're wrong. I'm the question, are you more like your mom or your dad? I am when you are asked, which do you love more? I'm a mirror shattered in the shape of a Rorschach test. I am the superhero with a full face mask. I could be Batman. I'm a tree that was cut down and had his name changed to wood. I am your next door neighbor. I am your daughter's boyfriend. I am the guy you mistook for an Uber driver. And the guy you mistook for a Yale student rushing for your fraternity. And the guy you mistook for your friend from California who you thought moved to Connecticut and insisted on taking a picture with because we look like we could be twins. I'm the forgotten line in every poem. I'm the breath between each kiss. I'm an opposable thumb and ambidextrous. I'm the key beside the closed parenthesis, if that's what you want me to be. But I'm much more than that. Thank you. God damn, it's 
Nice to hear a good poem from an Asian American man. <laughs> you can join us if you want. There's so few of us in America writing poetry. Uh, we have three more poets. Our next poet, I believe, is another Yop debuter. Give a warm welcome to Emma. Ro is it Rojas? Rojas. Emma Rojas. Yeah, I think so. Thank you. I think that's good. Uh, I will keep this really short and sweet. This poem is titled, Pie. The work is done, so we eat blackberry rhubarb pie, savor the flaky bits, enter a sugar-crystalled bliss. When life is hard, remember this, aroma from the oven, the scent that whispers before the timer shouts, the pie is done. This is the kind of love I love, cooling the counter so the butter won't melt, rolling in layer after layer, a slow maceration sizzling, time and heat transforming, till ignorance becomes understanding and every bite is bliss. Yeah. That was short and sweet. So I like it. Efficiency. Well done, Emma. We have two poets left. Another Quinnipiac student of mine. They all made that. See, they all made that. They all discovered I had a life <laughs> outside of teaching this month. It's very, it's very nice. Uh, this next poet was telling me she's, she won uh, an award or something at another open mic in the city. And I was like, you know, I run an open mic too, right? So congratulations, but I'm also insulted. <laughs> Give it up for Lauren McGrath. Yeah. I didn't win. I said I got into the second round, but he doesn't read his emails properly, apparently. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, he was my professor, so if it sucks... <laughs> Um, this is called The Feminist Perspective. I wonder if more people slow down or speed up at yellow lights. I wonder if he thought her body was a traffic light, and when she said slow down, he took it as a sign to hit the gas. When she said stop, let's take a break, he thought of her as a red light, but seeing no cameras, it was one he could blow. I wonder how many people still put change in a meter. I wonder if he thought my drink was a meter and a roofie was just change he could just slip inside. If my friend hadn't noticed I was missing and carried me away, what else would he mistake for a meter and what else would he try to just slip inside? Sometimes when guys look at me, I think they see a gas station, somewhere to stop off, pump twice, and then go to their actual destination. I never understood why men punch walls when they're angry. Doesn't that hurt your fucking hand? <laughs> and I wonder if he hurt his fucking hand when he tried to punch down the walls that my friend created through her skin. I'm tired of making shitty metaphors to explain that women are not objects. In my freshman year English class, my 90-year-old professor looked at me for the hundredth time that semester and asked if I could speak on this from the feminist perspective. 
And for the hundredth time that semester, I heard the boys in my class laugh and groan and hit the desk. And each groan they made sounded like the groan my bones made when my friend collected them from the man who promised to take me home and make me feel all better. And each laugh they made sounded like the dry scratching scream my friend had made when she recounted her rape to me. Each time they jokingly hit the desk in frustration, I saw the way she beat her stomach and pulled at her hair as if she didn't want to be in a body that he too had been in. I wanted to scream that I wasn't seeing things from a feminist perspective. I was seeing them from a human one. Thank you, Lauren. Damn proud. Damn proud. Damn proud. What a teacher, huh? Three, three brilliant students. I feel like there should be a three-way tie between my three students. Not telling you who to vote for. Our final poet of the evening. It couldn't be anyone but the woman with a swan on her head. Give it up for Anam Satar. Can you lower it a bit? Okay, um, I'm just gonna read one poem because everybody has to go home and it's based off the swan. Uh, I wanna thank Jason though, that was very sweet of you. Thank you so much for letting me read. Okay, um, The Courtship. The bashful lady swan tucked her head underneath her wing as the cob glided with such grace on the rippling water that she thought he had descended from the heavens for he surpassed all the other oafs in their mating displays. She finally gathered up the courage to fly out to him and landed herself for him to clamber onto her snowy bank back. But though he gripped her long neck with his knobby beak, the clumsy girl lost her balance and toppled him over. And though she opened her throat to tempt him once again, the swan realized that she could not hold his fleeting attention for he slowly drifted towards a more experienced neighbor while she schemed against them from behind the shriveled rushes. Thank you. All right, thank you. What an audience. I feel like this is the first time this many people stayed until the end. You guys are fantastic. So to review, to vote for Poem of the Month for August, we had 19 readers. We didn't get to the 20th, unfortunately. That was Anam Satar with the swan. You could just text swan. I'll know who you're talking about. Uh, before that was Lauren McGrath, Emma Rojas, Kyle Leung, Arthur Russell, Julia Knobloch, Julie Hart, Donna Hunt, Christina Callery, Abigail Wellhouse, Richard Fine, Harvey Sauce, Noah Ateji, Alan Braverman, John Acker, Christian Larson Socaris, Carol Derby, Sidra Mallory, and at the beginning, Julie Chen. The number, once again, to vote for Poem of the Month. This feels like a game show, suddenly. <laughs> I, should, I should have a game show. 718, <laughs> 718, I, I, I do have theme music, Arthur, come on. In my head, you know. 718-374-1953. 718-374-1953. If you happen to forget that, just email me. Could also, could also talk to me, but it's, it's easier to do things digitally, really. 
than in reality these days, as you know. 718-374-1953. A couple last announcements. Uh, next week, in fact, uh, seven days from now, this Monday, back in this very same room, we have our summer workshop showcase, which is our group reading celebrating our students and faculty from our summer workshops. It's my personally my favorite event. Our teachers personally introduce our students, and they read, our teachers read, and it's, it's a really good time. Free to the public, so if you want to come to that, uh, come to that. It starts at 7 o'clock. We have a reading on September 8th, which is not at 61 Local, first time in a while. A new building in Bushwick has just opened called 100 Bogart. It's a really fancy arts building uh, right across from Roberta's. So it's like you can get good pizza, come to the event, and we have a really special lineup. Nicole Seeley, Emily Skillings, and all the way from Minnesota, Dana Smith will be reading for us. Uh, if you know his work, he's pretty amazing, so come out for that. I'm just done making announcements. Uh, oh, I wanted to say something about Isaac Myers' journal. He, Isaac Myers, this gentleman right here who, who knew what I said, fuck that guy, uh, just started a journal called, is it Curlew Quarterly? That's what you call it? Curlew Quarterly, uh, which I, in fact, am in. It's not why I'm talking about this, but uh, no. you will benefit from it if you look at it. It's for sale in the back. It's a really fantastic new journal that not only publishes uh, work by creatives in Brooklyn, but uh, incredibly interviews those writers and takes photographs of their apartments. So it's a really fun journal to, to, to you know, we, we don't really read journals, as we all know. We like to leaf through them. So if you like to do that instead of reading, you will really like this journal. Not to say that you shouldn't read it. You should. But if you're only going to leaf, this is the journal to buy because there are some <laughs> amazing photographs uh, taken of different people's apartments in Brooklyn. It's a really interesting journal. One of the most original that I know of today in Brooklyn. We do have the anthology for sale in the back. Swag, 20% off. That is it. I am done. Our next job in September will be led by Anna Bazicevich. That is how you pronounce her last name. Come out for that. That is a Brooklyn Book Festival bookend event. We will see you then. Good night. So there you have it, the Brooklyn Poets Yop open mic for August 14th, 2017. Thanks again to Professor Miller Oberman for leading our workshop and kicking off the open mic. Congrats to Lauren McGrath, one of my Quinnipiac University students, for winning August Yop Poem of the Month for her terrific poem, The Feminist Perspective. Lauren has earned a spot in our Poem of the Year Smackdown on December 11th. That's the December Yop. She'll go head-to-head -head against the other 11 winners of Poem of the Month over the last 12 months for coveted Poem of the Year honors. Our next Yop comes your way on September 11th. That is a Brooklyn Book Festival bookend event. The workshop will be led by new Brooklyn Poets professor, Anna Bozicevich, so that's definitely one you should come out to. For more information and to sign up, go to brooklynpoets.org. We hope to see you there. Be well. Screw the white nationalists. Screw Donald Trump. And have a very good day. <laughs>